No, I, I the only thing I ever take singular credit for was telling everybody to leave. You you saved everybody's life. Right. I, I think so. I, I definitely, I, you know, I think so. Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Giordano. On September 11, 2001, the architecture firm that I now own with my partners, Mancini Duffy, was completely destroyed in the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. The office was on the 21st and 22nd floors of Two World Trade, the South Tower. I sat down with our former chairman and CEO, Anthony Sharippa, FAIA, and Kemper Award winner, to hear the story of that day and how our firm survived and recovered from this tragedy. Tony is born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and decided at a young age to become an architect after working with his father, who had a small construction company. He attended Brooklyn Technical High School, or Brooklyn Tech, as it's known, which had an architecture program, something that Tony is very proud of to this day. And in the summers, he worked as a bricklayer. He graduated from Texas A&M in 1973 with a Bachelor's of Environmental Design and a Bachelor's of Science in Building Construction. Tony worked at W.B. Tabler Architects, Gibbs and Hill Architects and Engineers, and from 1980 to 1995, he worked for Gensler, where he became a partner. In 1995, he joined this firm, Mancini Duffy, as a partner, and five years later was named CEO when Ralph Mancini retired in 2006. He became chairman and CEO until Scott Harrell, Bill Mandera, and myself bought the firm from him in 2012. Throughout this podcast today, you will hear Tony reference many names and companies. We have included tags to as many of them as possible on my LinkedIn, as we felt it important that they are all recognized as well. We are also making a donation to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation honors the sacrifice of firefighter Stephen Siller, who laid down his life to save others on September 11, 2001. Please visit them and follow his father, Frank Siller, at t2t.org. That's T, the number two, t.org. It didn't really hit home until I watched the building collapse, like by the third the third rerun of the collapse, that it, did it really sort of sink in that everything was gone. Yeah. You know, every pencil, every computer, every whatever we had was all gone. On September 11, 2001, at 8.46 a.m., American Airlines Flight 11 from Boston, bound for Los Angeles, crashed into the World Trade Center's North Tower between the 93rd and 99th floors. At 9.03 a.m., United Flight 175, also headed from Boston to L.A., crashed into the World Trade Center's South Tower between the 77th and 85th floor. At 9.59 a.m., the South Tower collapsed, where the Mancini office was located. 
At 1028 a.m., the North Tower collapsed. 2,977 innocent people died that day in those buildings and airplanes. This is Tony's story of that day. I, it was a Tuesday. In fact, it was a wonderfully beautiful, beautiful day. day. Uh, we used to have our partners meetings on Tuesday at the end of the day. And so I would drive in so that I wouldn't have to be a slave to the <clears throat> railroad schedule. <clears throat> I'd have to leave the meeting early if there was something important we were discussing. So I drove in, went into the office. I was sort of on the listening to my voicemail on the phone. We had just acquired uh, this firm Liminality in Washington, D.C. to start our Washington office. You know, the morning of 9-11, um, so as I said, I was listening to my voicemail and I was listening to a message from our my new partner in Washington. And uh, uh, Arnold and uh, his wife's name is escaping me now, Levin, the Levins. And I'm watching some guy walking in the plaza and I see him stop turn around and start running the opposite way. I'm like, gee, that's odd. And all of a sudden I hear it. I, I'm, I'm looking down. I hear this boom. Yeah. Right. And it turns out, but I didn't know at the time, I just heard a boom and I, I smelled what I thought was diesel fuel. So I'm looking out my window. I'm seeing flames coming out of the building where, where the upper machine room floor is. I'm thinking maybe a, a generator explosion or something happened. It was an accident. So by then everybody in the office is all, you know, a tither. They're all running around, scurrying around. I figured, look, no work's going to get done. She told me, let's get out. So we left the, we left our office uh, just before the plane hit to World Trade Center. Now, again, I, I didn't know that. At, in hindsight, I didn't know that. So we, I get down to, we get down to and the And Mancini's offices were in? Two World two. Trade on the 21st floor, 24, 21 and 22. Right. We had Dave Hannaford, our CFO, was up on the 22nd floor with a, a group of people. Uh, one great thing about the Trade Center is when we had to grow, there was always some space available <laughs> that we could take. So, so it was kind of, it was convenient in a way. So we, uh, you know, I, I should, the only thing I ever take singular credit for was telling everybody to leave. You, you saved everybody's life. I, I, I think so. I, I definitely, I, you know, I think so. And, and so now... And how many, I, how many people were in the firm at the time? Well, the whole firm at the time was like 160 people. Okay. Uh, we in the probably World Trade. had at least 120 to 150 in, in the World Trade Center. We, we had Jersey and Washington. Okay. Uh, Jersey was about 20 people. Washington was about 15 at the time. And I think we still had San Francisco. And that was they were about 15 or 20 people in San Francisco. The rest were in New York. And um, so I give the order to leave, right? So now I'm leaving the building and I see Davis because he came down from twice and make sure everybody's out of 22. I'll make sure everybody's out of 21. So I, I make a spin around the office. I made sure everybody got out. I walk out the door and I'm walking to the stairs and I just see Dave Hatterford who went to the stair. He was the last one into the stair. And then I said to myself, oh, I remembered Al's story about what happened when they left the office during the bombing. So I went back to lock the door. So I go and I lock the front door 
And then I said to myself, well, there's nothing going on in this building. So why am I going into the stairs? Let me take the elevator. Turned out to be okay. Because <laughs> I figured if I pressed the button, it didn't come. It meant it was in recall. And then I'd go down the steps. So I took the elevator down. So obviously there was nobody in the elevator. I was doing, we went right down to the lobby and the lobby was like chaos. And there were people, the uh, World Trade Center people were telling us to go back. Oh, really? And I, and I was like, you know, no, I'm not going to, I'm down here already. I'm going to get out. Do you remember? So, I mean, it's been 20 years, which right. I'm sure it's hard to imagine that it's been 20 years already. Do you remember what the lobby looked like and smelled like? And can you? That, no, I just remember it was chaos with people scurrying everywhere. I don't remember anything in terms of smells or anything like that. The only, you know, sensory thing I recall was when the plane hit the first building and I smelled what turned out to be the jet fuel. I thought it was diesel fuel. Right. That's what, that's the only thing I remember smelling. Okay. So now I get out of the building. So now I'm starting to worry because I don't see anybody. And I start walking around the neighborhood, walking around and walking around trying to find people. I found about a half a dozen people and told them to get home. And right. then I said to myself, it was probably about 40 minutes late. Now, within that time frame, the second plane hit our building. And again, I didn't see it. I heard it. Right. And then when I looked up, because I was trying to call people and look for people, I wasn't looking up at the building. And... <clears throat> When I when I heard the second explosion and I looked up and I saw the flames coming out of what would have been the north face of the South Tower, it was like, my God, what the hell happened? I and mean, it's like, what is this? Because I heard people talking about planes and no idea right. what you know, a plane wouldn't. A small, I'm thinking a small plane wouldn't cause that much damage. So make a long story short, after about 45 minutes, I feel, let me go get to, let me get to my car and get out of here and go home. So I sort of made my way like south down Broadway, actually, and then turned around and came back up, uh, I'm trying to think, is that Washington Street? Um, anyway, my car was parked in a garage about a block south of Two World Trade. <clears throat> and uh, I remember looking up at the building where the plane went in, and I'm looking at this hole, gaping hole in the side of the building, and I'm like counting how many column bays across mm -hmm. and how many bays up, and I'm thinking to myself, the top of the building is going to fall off. And I'm like right in its path. So I, I quick get into the garage. And by then, the fire department was starting to put up barriers to push people away. And I, I the guy was saying to me, no, you can't go any further. I said, look, my car is right there. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to get out of here. So he, he let me go through. And so while I was I had given the ticket, I, I don't even know if I paid, but I was waiting for my car, two World Trade Center collapsed. Wow. So now I'm hearing all of this rumbling. And the first thing I could do is look for the strongest part of the building where I was and just hide, basically, and get, I wound up getting covered in dust. And uh, the garage people, all I heard was a lot of yelling and shouting. And, you know, and some of the garage people said there's an exit up at the roof to the next building. So we all started to make our way up the stairwell to go up which I thought was odd. So I went up and some guy behind me is carrying a bicycle. <laughs> and he's telling me, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I said, pal, none of us can breathe. Why don't you ditch the bicycle? Maybe it'll be a little easier for you. And the other sort of thing that my mother always said to me, make sure you always have a handkerchief in your pocket. Mm -hmm. I took my handkerchief out and I put it around my face and that protected me from the, from the dust somewhat. Yeah. 
So we get up to the top of the garage. There's no way out. So I said, all right, I'm, I'm heading down, folks, because I'm going to get down to the street. Because now I'm thinking, like, if, if the other building is going to collapse or whatever, we're, we're like in the line of fire here. Did you think the building had collapsed at that point? I didn't know what happened. Right. Okay. Obviously, I survived the noise. What I didn't realize was that the building, if you ever look at, at, at slow motion photography of the collapse of two world traits, you'll note that it tilted yeah. south and then went straight down. So now I thought the tilt, it would have just kept coming yeah. to where I was. So <clears throat> I, I got out of the place, I wound up making my way out and uh, turns out I was walking in the row, I was walking towards the building instead of away from it because the debris, the reason I realized that is the debris was getting taller and taller wow. in the street. And uh, so I've, saw a fireman actually going the other way. So I, I turned myself around. I, and I think there was some people following me. And then I remember seeing like all of a sudden a light, somebody opened up a door and it turned out it was like a health club next to the parking building. They saw us in the street. So when they opened up the door, we all went to the light. And that's why I, I got in out of the dust cloud and uh, went into a basement and sort of washed myself off a little bit. And I was watching reruns. And that's when I saw that it was two planes. And I was like, my God, this is like madness. So I, I said to myself, I didn't really want to hang around here because I didn't know what was happening with the other building. And uh, so I'm thinking that because I can't see because of the dust, that two rail traits and a part of it is still standing. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that it completely, completely collapsed. Gone. So I made my way out of there. And I, I remember heading south to, to get closer to the water. And I foresee I was going to try to walk to Brooklyn and get on the railroad to go home because <clears throat> I couldn't. My car was basically not to be found. <clears throat> so I, I actually walked to the Brooklyn. I got, first went to the South Street Seaport because people said people are gathering at the seaport. To, so we figured there would be instructions like the city would be directing people where to go, what to do. So I get to the South Street Seaport. There's nothing. No directions, nothing. Just I ran into a guy from JB&B &B, yeah. and, you know, he was the one who told me that both towers collapsed, oh, wow. you know, in the meantime. And I'm like, my God, both towers are gone. And uh, uh, so I made my way to the Brooklyn Bridge. And when I asked the cop, just I was about to go up onto the bridge. I said, is the, is the Long Island Railroad running in Brooklyn? And he said, everything is shut down. Nothing is running. So I'm like, what am I going to go into Brooklyn for? And then I, again, the light bulb, my son had just moved into the city to go to law school. Okay. And I remember he lived on 11th Street off, off Fifth Avenue. So I started to make my way to his apartment and that was sort of the end of my, so I, I got to his apartment by the afternoon and I couldn't get to my wife until like three o'clock. She was a basket case already, not knowing what happened. To yeah. Me. So your wife had no idea that no. you had no, all the left. The only thing I did, I was able to call her. She didn't know what happened yet. Because uh, it was her day off and she was just getting up when I called her. I said, something happened at the Trade Center. I didn't know what. I said, I'm leaving the building now. So don't worry about me. I'm out of the building and I'll call you. Mm -hmm. And But then that was like 10 to 9. I never called her because I couldn't. Sure. The cell circuits were all too busy. And so I wound up at my son's place. And then we uh, got a phone chain going. Finally, when we got cell service restored, we got a phone chain going with the firm. It turned out everybody got out safe uh, and everybody got home. Um, 
And then we decided, Ralph, bless his soul, was in a meeting at J.P. Morgan because they were moving into 277 Park and he was he was part of the team. Mm-hmm. He was in a meeting there when, when, when it happened. And he arranged with Morgan to get some space for us to put the, the team working on the J.P. Morgan project. It was in the fourth floor of 277 Park. So we spread the word. We're going to gather at, in front of 277 Park on Thursday and sort of we'll... F- figure out what's what's going on. So now we're all getting ready to meet. And at it's like 12 o'clock, there's a bomb scare in the building and everybody's running out of the building. Oh. And ABC News came to do a story about us, about, you know, our search for quarters. And, and they were running, and Ralph went running down the block on Park Avenue to KPMG at, at 345 Park. And he got us to use their conference room. Okay. So we all went to, to KPMG's <clears throat> conference room. And and we had our we we had our meeting basically mm-hmm. and, and uh, I'm trying to remember the ABC and uh, the reporter she basically interviewed us there. Okay, so the office was obviously completely destroyed. Right. How how devastating was that to you? And, and you know, it was. It didn't really hit home until I watched the building collapsed, like by the third, the third rerun of the collapse, did it, did it really sort of sink in that everything was gone? Yeah. You know, every pencil, every computer, every, whatever we had was all gone. Thanks to Tony's leadership, as well as many of the others that day, no one from Mancini Duffy lost their life. I asked Tony to share a bit about his story, his early career, the Gensler days that he speaks so fondly upon, and of course, Ralph Mancini, whose personality and aura were legendary in the New York City architecture world. I speak a lot about my firm's 100-year-old history almost every day. I'm proud to be part of this organization and let it live on. I'm also happy that the narrative I tell is pretty accurate, according to Tony. Born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, uh, went to a Catholic elementary school, and when it was time for me to go to high school, um, you know, my father being a, in the construction business, I wanted to sort of somewhat follow in his footsteps, and his uh, mission to me was he didn't want me to get calluses on my hands, so I had to go to college, so I looked around and see what, so what's the profession that I'm going to go, so architecture at the time. So this is like 1962 when I had to make a decision about high school. So I took the test to go to Brooklyn Tech and I got in, uh, fortunately. Uh, And it was actually one of the better decisions in my life because uh, they had an architecture program. I know it's, it's, Funny to think that high school has that kind of a, it's, yes, they still have it today. It was, at the time, it was one of, they had seven majors at the time, mostly engineering. It was, um, they had architecture, civil engineering, electrical engineering, structural engineering, mechanical engineering, and then they had college prep. If you, if you couldn't make up your mind on the engineering, they also had industrial design. So, um, I chose, and you had, you had to make that decision before you started your junior year. So your freshman and sophomore year were typical, you know, liberal arts, your, your English and sciences and mathematics. Uh, and then you, you, you make it a career decision for your junior and senior year. So I chose architecture. So whatever would have been like elective courses, 
became filled with uh, architecture, design studio. I had strength and materials, uh, both lab and, uh, you know, theory course. Uh, and then we had a building construction shop that taught us how to work with tools and how to build a house. Right. We actually did a scale model. We had to cut all the wood and, you know, make the joists and, um, uh, for a house. And the, uh, the shop that we met in actually had a three quarter scale house that was built by previous classes as a, as an example of the work that they did. So it basically not only taught you the theory behind architecture, but, but the mechanical and the, and the manual skills that you needed. Right. So it was good in that respect. And, uh, you know, the path at that point, uh, not being, a, from wealthy parents. I wanted to go to city college, but I, I didn't have at the time city college didn't have open enrollment and you needed to have like a 98 average to get in. I quite wasn't quite there when I graduated high school. So I wound up going through the community college system and then ultimately decided to switch and go down to Texas A&M. Um, the, the tuition was very reasonable for an out of state student. Okay. I mean, it was, $200 a semester. I, I thought it was a misprint when I first got the paperwork. Wow. Uh, and when I called and asked just to clarify, I said, well, so if I were a resident, how much would it have been? It would have been 50. 200? Wow. So, so I, I settled on the 200 and that's that right. decided to go there. And then along the way, when I, I took my last semester of college work and sent it down, when they analyzed my degree, per, in, order, in order for me to take the sequence of design courses that I had to take, it wound up pushing my graduation from 1972 to 1973. So, but I had all of this extra time now because I, I only had like a really busy course load my first two semesters. And then the last four would have been like six credits, six credits, 10 credits of having part-time, being a part-time student college station, Texas wasn't exactly a, you know, nice town, but, you know, compared to Brooklyn yeah. and New York City, just not quite the same. So I, I elected to double major. So in addition to the environmental design major, I, I took on building construction. So that sort of filled up my my calendar in terms of my, my coursework. And as a result, in order for me to finish in May of 73, I wound up having to take like 21, 24 and 25 and 25 credits my last four semesters oh, wow. that I was there. So in order in order for me to get out and then actually I also had to do a summer. Uh, I, I took a course in the summer back in New York, a, a history of some. I don't even remember what I did a business course at, at Baruch, what was then Baruch College. Okay. So I could get all the credits I needed. Actually, it turns out I have over 200 credits, <laughs> <laughs> enough for a, for a PhD, but I, but I have two bachelor's degrees basically. So I, I, you know, when I graduated, I came home. I, Marilyn and I were planning our wedding. We were gonna, getting married that coming June. And I figured I would start my job search like right after the wedding and the honeymoon. Uh, so I got a call. I was home like two days. I got a call from my dean saying, you know, have you got a job yet? And I said, well, I haven't started looking. He said, well, what are you waiting for? I said, well, I'm getting married in a month. I figured I would, I would wait until I could start and work like, like a beaver, you know, once I got out of, <laughs> got, got the wedding done. And he said, well, I, William Taylor's hiring. I gave them your name. Here's the number. Here's the partner, Gene Branding. Give him a call. So I, I hung up the phone and I was like scrambling because I didn't have my portfolio together because I wasn't planning to start doing the, the job search. So, I, I mean, I was done, hung, hang up the phone with the dean. About five minutes later, I get a call from Gene Branning from William Taylor's office. So he said, so why don't you come in for an interview? So I, I 
threw my portfolio together, went in for the, for the interview. He looked through everything, offered me a job on the spot. So, you know, I, I accepted it. But I said, look, I, I I mean, I would love to start like tomorrow, but I'm getting married in, on June 23rd and I need, you know, I was planning a two-week honeymoon. He said, so when you're done with your honeymoon, you come in and you'll start. That's great. So I wound up starting like the first or second week of July, whatever whatever the calendar worked out to so be. So you got married June 23rd, June, June 1973. 1973, just, right. just so, the yeah. day after you were born. Exactly. So you've been <laughs> married 48 years. Right. Right. <laughs> so... Uh, that's how I remember your birthday. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and coincidentally, uh, you know, I, I start the job at Tabler and there's this fellow sitting, because, you know, we faced each other, the drafting tables. Where was Tabler? Uh, at the, on the top of the Statler Hilton, what is now the Hotel Pennsylvania. It was the Statler Hilton back okay. then. So we were on the 18th floor, uh, the same floor as the ballroom. Mm -hmm. So... And there's a guy sitting opposite me and, you know, we're working every now and then we look up at one another and he said, you know, you look familiar. I said, I was thinking the same thing. You look familiar too. Where'd you go to college? He went to City College. I went to Texas A&M. So we, okay. So we went down and continued working and like 10, 15 minutes later, where'd you go to high school? I went to Brooklyn Tech. Oh, I went to Brooklyn Tech. When did you graduate? 1967. Bingo. That, that was our connection. We went to, it, it was Aldalia. Ah, okay. So, so we got, we, we became good friends again. We kind of knew each other from high school, but not because, because Brooklyn Tech was a commuter high school, kids didn't really get together after school because they didn't live near each other. So we tended to just, you know, we just socialized in the school. Sure, sure. So, um, you know, that again began a friendship that's lasts until today. I did not realize that Al, that you went back that far with yes. Al. I just assumed it was a Mancini Duffy connection. So. No, so I'll, okay. I'll explain the, the sort right, of right. The, the trajectory. <laughs> so, Tabler was a great place to work. I learned a lot. We, we, it was a wonderful, from an experiential standpoint. Uh, I think within the first year, I was a job captain on a, on a major part of a hotel project. We did hotels. So, I was. Okay. Basically doing hotels for like the first four and a half years of my career. What happened at that point, my son was born and my wife, you know, we decided that she decided she wanted to stay home and raise the child, not want to go back to work. We now had to rely on just my salary to live. And it wasn't really, table was great in terms of an experience, but, you know, the financial, yeah, the finances just weren't there. So I, I was forced to like, look for a, for a job and being a little bit naive in terms of researching the firm I was going to work for. You know, I went to a headhunter. She found me a job with a, uh, a firm that did shopping centers, still remain nameless, but it, they were a hire and fire firm. So I got hired and, you know, the project I worked on was a, a JC Penney store in, in North Carolina. And when the job went out to bid, me and the team went out the door with it. That's because okay. they didn't have another project lined up. Right. So I learned a sort of a bit of lesson to be a little bit more careful about the firm that I picked to go work for. And I went back to the same headhunter, uh, Ruth Hirsch, actually. And uh, she then found me a position at Gibson Hill, which was a, an enormous company at the time that did, um, they were an engineering firm first. They, they originally began life <clears throat> by electrifying the Pennsylvania Railroad back at the turn of the last century. Okay. And they grew basically into uh, designing power plants, both coal and oil. 
and, and gas, fossil fuel. <clears throat> and obviously in the nuclear age, they started designing nuclear power plants. And I went to work in the architecture department, which was 150 people. Oh, wow. So it was like a, basically a huge firm Impressive, in and yeah. of itself. And uh, where were they located? They were 393 7th Avenue. So it's like <laughs> I was being called to 7th Avenue. Okay. Like in, it's a small world, right? <laughs> so they were, they were across the street from the Statler. And so I started working there. And, you know, Al and I would continue to, he was still a tabler. And he was also getting restless and wanting to find a move. So fast forward like three years, 1980, 7980. And uh, he's telling me about his interviews with various firms. And he tells me about, he says, you know, there's this California architect that's opening a New York office. And, you know, I don't know if I should go. I'm, you know, they're just opening. They're just starting. So I said, Al, look, if I were in your position, I would take the job because I think it's a good opportunity. If they grow, you grow with the with the office. Turned sure. out to be Gensler. Wow. Yep. So I said, and then when you get there, I said, if <laughs> they need know. more people, let me know because I'm losing my mind working in a company of engineers. Uh, although I was doing interiors, that was the first time I started doing corporate interiors. Okay. Because they shifted me to a small group of people because Gibson Hill was expanding so rapidly in the, in the area, we were doing all of their office space. So our client was Gibson Hill's facilities department. Wow. Okay. So I was doing office floors at Two Penn Plaza at One Penn Plaza at 393 7th. And it was essentially all office interiors. Sure. And that got me the taste of, of doing interior work. So we'll, we'll fast forward to the spring of 1980 and I get a call from Al and Gensler is hiring. Why don't you, you know, come in for an interview? So I went for an interview with uh, John Lajewski and uh, Margot Grant and I, they offered me a job and so, like they say, the rest is history. Yeah. I started at Gensler and, and was there for 15 years. And uh, Dina Frank, uh, we, we she started just before me. We mm -hmm. wound up growing in the firm together. Uh, eventually, I became a partner. At the time, the title was vice president. So, I had my own studio in New York. And when I first started with Gensler in New York, we were like 20 people. Right. And when I left, we were 175. Wow. So we were huge. And, and how many, how big do you think they were sort of nationwide at that At point? the time, Gensler was about a thousand people. Wow. So that was so big they were still pretty then. big. I mean, they were, they yeah. were pretty big when I joined, you know, the rest of the firm was probably about four, four or 500 people strong. Yeah. And then by the time I left, they were a thousand. Wow. And uh, I mean, it's an, that in and of itself, the Gensler story is an amazing, oh, uh, an amazing that that an architect that could start a firm that today is now worth you know one point two or three or four billion yeah. in annual fees is like mind boggling. It is mind boggling. And and the the sad thing you know Art just passed away. Yep. Uh, back in in uh, or a couple of months ago actually and. and kind of a sad day. And that same week, Ed Friedrichs also passed away. Yeah. Ed was one of the original board members uh, and he ran Arts Los Angeles office. Okay. Eventually became CEO of the firm. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, retired and then sort of did his own consulting practice. In fact, I brought Ed to Mancini to work with us. Interesting. To help us get to another level that was sort of later on in the, in the career path. <laughs> but, but, uh, so that's sort of the connection. So anyway, I, you know, I, I grew my, got some wonderful work and opportunities at Gensler. Uh, my studio was, uh, at, at its peak was 40 people. Uh, and one of the big projects we were doing was J.P. Morgan's headquarters at 60 Wall Street. Yep. Um, huge project. Um, 
And, uh, you know, Dina was the design director in my studio and worked on that project with me. Yep. And then she, she got, you know, sort of disheartened with the whole <laughs> huge behemoth firm and for whatever other reasons drove her to look elsewhere. And she got recruited by, by Al and Ralph. Okay. I believe. So Al had gone to Al had already left and, and gone okay. to Mancini, uh, probably, I want to say about five years before me. Okay. And, uh, probably about nine months later, Dina, we had lunch and she said, like, would you talk to Ralph? Cause she got wind that I was getting antsy. Mm-hmm. And I said to Dina, I'm not, I, I'm not antsy at Gensler. I'm very happy with the firm. Yeah. I'm just, I'm weary of, of being an architect and how clients treat us. I have no complaints about Gensler, the firm. Right. I'm just tired of getting beaten up by clients who don't appreciate what you do. And the fact that you have the audacity to ask to be paid when they <laughs> ask you to do something is like, and the fact that they, they, they say no, it's like, you know, it was getting kind of disheartening. So she said, look, <clears throat> we really need somebody with your skill set. Talk to Ralph and see what happens. So Ralph and I met for, I guess, breakfast. And uh, again, like the rest is history, an, an offer came. What year was that? Uh, that would have been 1995. Okay. So early, I would say late 94, like early, early 95, because I started here in like May of, May of 95. Okay. Uh, so I came in as a principal and uh the reason they were after me is because they had this huge DLJ project. It was almost yep. at the time was 750,000 square feet at, at 277 Park and they needed somebody with big project technical experience. So yeah. that was a, that was a treat when I first mm-hmm. came to the office and took a look at how the job was being organized. And it was, let's say, let's leave it as a <laughs> dark part of our history. <laughs> and I would just, I will just tell you, you know, Ralph always had a unique way of, of categorizing things. And about a year after I started, he came to me one day, you know, and he would, he would flit around the office because he was always out with his clients. He, he re- rarely spent time in the office. I always tell people that too, that yeah. Ralph didn't have a desk. He just kind of meandered he, he around. <laughs> but he never used it. He just, he, he used to park his mementos there. And his secretary uh, used to take care of his, his schedule and his calendar. Anyway, so about a year after I started, he came, he came by my, my office one, one day. And he said, Tony, he said, I, you're doing a great job. So now I, I'm saying like, how would you know that? Because you never hear and you don't really see what I'm doing. So I said, so, well, thanks, Ralph. He said, you know why, how I know that? I said, please tell me. He said, well, because the, the contractors all tell me. He said, Ralph, I don't know what you're doing, but when we used to get your drawings, it was like reading the New York Post. He said, and now we get your drawings. It's like reading the New York Times. <laughs> so I took that as the ultimate compliment. The firm Al, uh, Ralph worked for was also a big interiors firm. Okay. J- JFN, I think. Anyway, let's, I don't, I, my, my memory is not there. But anyway, uh, he was, oh, GHK. GHK, Gris, yes. Griswold, Heckle, and Kelly. That's it, GHK. Um, and they were, Ralph was actually trying to talk to one of the, uh, I think it was Al Heckle was the senior partner, and he was looking to retire. And, and Ralph and a couple of the guys in the firm wanted to buy the office or the firm. And... It turns out that Heckel basically sold the firm out from under Ralph. And uh, I think it was uh, with uh, uh, 
Oh, CRS okay. bought them. I think I think that was the firm, and he then went out. He decided to go out on his own because he figured I can't go. I was here. I am working with these guys, and so he left and opened up his own firm. And with him came Jeff Tobin and Frank Leone, and I think eventually Max Cower. Okay. Uh, they all they all started working with Ralph, and he had his first office on Thirty Sixth Street. And that was the Mancini Associates. That was Mancini office. Ralph Mancini Associates <clears throat> okay. on Thirty Sixth Street, and. Uh, you know, again, his his one of his strong relationships was with uh, uh, Studley, George Martin mm-hmm. in particular. And George came to him and said, you know, Ralph, there's a big project cooking with. Um, oh, uh, U.S. Trust. U.S. Trust was on 47th Street, U.S. Trust. But you're. You can't handle it all by yourself. You, you're going to have to. You're going to have to acquire a firm, and the firm that does a lot of work for this firm is is Duffy. <laughs> so you, you're going to have to buy Duffy. So you know, Ralph said, "George, I don't really have like three nickels to rub together. So don't worry, we'll we'll work it out." So they so they worked it out. They 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 negotiated. It was a tough negotiation, and Ralph's you know what a little funny story about that. One of the things that almost broke the deal was that Duffy had season tickets for the Giants and, and Duffy wanted to keep them for himself. And Ralph said, I don't, I get those tickets, but we don't do the deal. <laughs> so the tickets came with the deal. So you, you know that the firm had them <laughs> for that long. So now Duffy was already in the World Trade Center. Okay. They, in fact, they moved there when the Trade Center first opened. Okay. And that's how the, when the firm came together, that's the, uh, that's how we wound up at the World Trade Center. I asked Tony to talk about rebuilding the firm after it was completely destroyed in the attacks. As you will hear, he speaks of Ralph, our clients, the generosity of our profession, and some complete strangers. The Mancini office was up and running again with people working in temporary office space donated by J.P. Morgan Chase and KPMG in only five days. You know, Ralph basically asked us, so do we want to rebuild? And like that, there was like 30 seconds of silence. And I said, Ralph, of course we have to rebuild. We have clients. We've got work. And we, you know, we can't just shut down. (laughs) He said, well, I I just wanted to ask everybody that question. I wanted to make sure you had it in you to open up again. I said, of course we do. We have to just figure out what we're going to do. So it was um, that Friday, um, Al, Dina, and myself we got studly and we started looking at space. So how long before you got the temporary office at JP Morgan up and running? Uh, that in and of itself was a, a miracle, to me, a miracle of miracles. JP Morgan basically emptied out their, their furniture warehouse and brought every piece of furniture they could craft together to assemble workstations. And it turns out it was all the old Corey Hebert furniture that Dina and I did for J.P. Morgan at 60 Wall Street. Well, a lot of it was, not all of it, but a lot of it was. So they, they, they cobbled together an office space for us. You know, originally, I forget the number of people that was supposed to house, but we stuffed everybody we could in there. We had 
basically Ralph, Al, and me shared one 10 by 15 office with our assistants. <laughs> so it was like six people in one room. It, it was so, it was, things were so tight that if you, and not everybody had phones. If you were on the phone and you left your where you were sitting, somebody took your chair because they needed a chair somewhere else. I mean, that's, that's how, how bad it was. And we had some, we had some people camped at KPMG, those who were working on KPMG projects. Uh, and then at, at the time we were doing a lot of work for Alliance Bernstein. We had, we had a group of people there. Uh, so that basically saved the day in terms of us getting up and running. And the other amazing thing that happened, we we got at the time, one of the things I, I when I first came to Mancini, my task was to standardize our technology and standardize our, our, our technical capabilities. And if I tell you when I got there, if, if there were 15 manufacturers of PCs, we had one of each. <laughs> So we standardized on HP and the 21 inch, the big 21 inch monitors back then, you know, the big, big giant huge tubes, yeah. CRTs. <laughs> so we called up HP and said, you know, we need like, you know, how many machines can you send us? And well, we, did, we can get you 60 machines in like three weeks. It was like three weeks without computers. We're, we're going to be dead. <clears throat> so, you know, we explained our situation to them. They said, well, let's see what we can do to get it to you faster. Well, the next day, three FedEx trucks showed up outside of 277 Park with the 60 HP computers. Wow. They sent it to us so that they can, we can get them hooked up. And we had actually uh, the IT people from a lot of the architecture firms around town came to our aid to help us get everything hooked up. I, I mean, the guy I knew from Gensler, he came over to help us out. Uh, a lot of the firms sent us their spare computers. That's great. You know, and, and like old laptops and, you know, just to get, just to give us some capability. Yeah. You know, so we, we were able pretty quickly, I think within a week, we, we were, we had some semblance of an operation going at, at 277 Park. So it was, it was kind of amazing the whole the way the industry came together. You know, I remember um, it was very touching. I got a, I got a package from somebody in Denver who read about us. Hmm. And and basically sent us a package of scales, <clears throat> you know, leads, uh, drafting leads, <laughs> tracing paper. And she said, I read about your situation. I thought some of this would come in handy. I mean, it was like like touching little <laughs> things like that. You're yeah. kind of amazed at how the how the people sort of banded together to help us. It really was incredible. Yeah. And, and even our clients, I mean, um, they all were, you know, concerned that we got up and running. You know, what did we need? You know, we all we the only thing we could say to them just please pay your bill because <laughs> you know we needed cash. In fact, one of the one of our clients knew that we had submitted a bill and knew we couldn't produce another one. They basically replicated our stationery, created the invoice that we would have sent them and paid it that's great. <laughs> so that's so that we can get the money. That's great. I mean, it was really great. I mean, really everybody, our clients, the, the consulting community, you know, helped, helped us rebuild all of our drawing. We, we were able to recover all of our active drawing files from our consultants because they yeah. had all of our drawings. Fortunately, we, we weren't that careful in sending them only the backgrounds they needed. We sent them our whole set. <laughs> so we were able to quickly recreate and and the other thing, what we couldn't, we scanned and then digitized. 
Sure. So that got us. The other, the other learning experience from that is I, I realized then that the valuable papers insurance that everybody places so much faith in was essentially worthless. Because mm -hmm. all, all that insurance pays for you to do is to reproduce a hand-drawn drawing. Mm. All of the computer files we had to use, our data insurance and uh, our property insurance, well, all of that is where we got all of our money that we needed to, to recover and, and restore everything. Okay. What of all the things that you lost um, that were destroyed, is there anything that comes to mind that you, you miss most or that you can think of Ralph missing? Well, I think just basically the history of the firm yeah. You know, we, we when Ralph uh, acquired Duffy, you know, along came this company called Holzer McCormick and Helmer. Right. Ralph didn't know what to do with it. You know, he didn't, you know why it was. He, he understood why it was there. But it was Al, I think, who started, the, you know, let's get Holzer McCormick, you know, elevate it. So that became basically our legal entity. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that Duffy when they acquired Halsey McCormick, it was, I think, in 1968, they acquired all of their documents. So all of the all of the projects that Halsey McCormick and Helmut did from back when the firm first was founded in like 1915, they had yeah. it was in the basement of the Trade Center. Uh -huh. You know, so all of that was lost. And that's, you know, you can't re you can't replace that. Yeah. You know, all of the original project photography for like the, the Williamsburg Savings Bank building in, in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, we were able to recover some of it. You know, the interesting little I always get these little tidbits of come together. The woman who photographed me for the for the Architect magazine article when I won the Kemper Award. She worked for the photographer or one of our photographers at the time who did a lot of our project work. And, and she was a, an intern and she was helping to gather up all of our records oh, wow. and all of our project photography. To, to get it back to us. You know, I think Ralph, you know, lost some, there were some mementos. And I think, again, over the course of the recovery, things happened. Yet you say to yourself, um, like one of our, one of the uh, our women, obviously you, when we left the office, everybody left their pocketbooks or whatever. The, uh, the police, when they were sifting through all of the, they found some of that stuff. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the people, the contents of, the, of their pocketbook was returned to them. The pocketbook was gone, but all of their wallet, their ID, their keys. And in fact, the, one of the keys was sort of melted. I think it melted in the heat because it was like warped in a way that, you know, that would be hard for it to based yeah. on weight to, to bend. And uh, in my case, uh, it happened probably a few months later. Some of my, I had in my desk drawer, I had all of the IDs of the clients that I worked with, you know, they want to get into their offices to go to a meeting. Sure. So I had my Goldman Sachs ID. I had a couple of other project IDs that was found. And in fact, one of the cops called his buddy who was head of security at Goldman Sachs and said, hey, I found this ID of someone who looks like they worked for Goldman Sachs. Did you, did you lose anybody? Is anybody missing? And the guy got back and said, turns out it was, he went to the facilities guy and, and Anthony Camarado, who's still there, you know, said, oh, I know that guy. He's with Mancini Duffy. He's one of our architects. Let me, let me get that stuff back. And he sent it back to me. <laughs> so my wife has it, like it's sort of in some 
enshrined and you know sort right. of welted survived, piece uh, of plastic that yeah. survived the trade center. And then the other, I think, really heartwarming uh, thing is Ralph had uh, a letter in, in his desk uh, when his uh, when his mother, I think it was his mom, who passed away, and one of his clients wrote him a very touching letter, and and a and a police lieutenant found it on the roof of one of the low buildings. It was like singed on the edges. Oh, and wow. he was he was on a mission to return it to Ralph. And then the other story, which you uh, Ralph had a, had the original wall plaque that yep. was on the 36th Street office mm -hmm. that used to be on his desk. Apparently somebody found it and it was I don't know how exactly where it wound up or how it wound up. It wound up in some bar. So, and some guy didn't didn't sell it. He kept it. Somebody got wind of it and and whatever made a deal to get it back to Ralph. Really? So yes. So Ralph got that plaque back. It meant a lot to him. And in fact, when we first moved into this space at two seventy five, he brought it and said, "Bring it." He brought it here and said, "Maybe it will bring us some luck." We close with the present day. Now twenty years after September eleventh, two thousand and one. Tony and I discuss managing an architecture firm through more tough times, the financial crisis compared to September 11th, and now COVID. We discuss our ownership transition and how my name came up to be the one to take the firm on for the next 25 years. I'm genuinely grateful to share this opportunity with my partners, Bill, Scott, Bola, and Jessica. Well, thank you for sharing. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> you know, all that. I'm glad we kind of got it all on the record to talk right. about it and, and kind of see where it is. So, you know, kind of fast forward to our story and, you know, I meet you. Um, I think Ralph kind of connected us. Right. No, uh, I, but I knew about you. Okay. And I had my eye on, on you and I was trying to be mindful of Ted's. Right you know, leaving HLW not to recruit. So I had to try to figure way, figure out a way how not to get Ted's fingerprints involved. <laughs> and Ralph came to me one day and said, you know, I was talking to uh, Ray Arnold from, from VVA and I was trying to ask him who was some of the young talent out there. And he mentioned the name to me. I said, well, who'd he tell you? Christian Giordano. I said, go after him. We have to go after him. I said, I can't. Right. I, I explained the stories. Fine, I'll I'll set it up, <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> and here I am. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it it's been. I think I came here in 2012. I believe. Um, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. So it's been it's been some time. And uh, again, I, I, I as I said early on before we we're talking, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity. You've been a true mentor in not only just you know how to treat others at the firm treated as a family you always spoke about it as a family and and um but also how to how to be a leader how to be decisive how to um you know lead during tough times because you know obviously your experience in in september 11th is a tough time rebuilding the firm several times you guys went through the financial crisis which in some ways was worse than what we just went right. through with the with the pandemic hmm. um but we've certainly had our challenging times here in terms of, you know, maybe some projects that we probably had no business taking early on that we did and, you know, got ourselves, uh, you know, the right staff finally. And now, you know, those things and those risks have paid off. 
And, you know, in our, and, and then the pandemic has been challenging. It really right. has from, you know, how do you manage a, well, first of all, you know, we're, we're a company that at least 50% of our revenue is dependent on right. people going to their offices right. and us designing right. their offices right. and somehow people don't go to offices anymore. So that's pretty, uh, uh, pretty daunting. But thankfully, you know, we've adapted along the way and we've been able to do, you know, kind of make our own mark. And I always tell people that during that period where I came on, you know, you didn't really know me all that well, but you you gave me the freedom to kind of do what you knew I needed to do, which was remake the firm and, you know, bring the people in that I needed to. And that set us up for success to what we're having now. Um and you didn't meddle in it, you know, you you provided guidance, you questioned things. I know you, some things you thought like, what is this guy doing? He's crazy. Um, but you stayed, you know, you, you let me do what I needed to do and and it all worked out. And I'm extremely, extremely grateful for but my, what you my did. My questioning though, was to make sure that your decisions were, were grounded in, in fact and not emotion. Yes. And they always were fact-based, so that's, was very reassuring to me, you know, and, and I, and I'd say Ralph in his own way did the same thing to, with Dina and me and Al, mm -hmm. he was here, uh, you know, he basically let us run the, run the office, run the firm. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> he didn't always agree with what we wanted to do, but he, he supported us in doing it. And, and if I learned any less, and I also, uh, I have to say the same thing about Gensler and the Gensler firm, uh, was a similar environment. And I, I really wanted to make sure that if I if if I left any legacy, it would be that 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 it's not about me. It's about who I hire yeah. and it's about about the people that make the firm what it is. And I have to be smart enough and have the courage to hire people better than me. And, and that's if I if I've instilled that in you, then I've my my job has been a, a huge success. For, so so you, thank you. So <laughs> you no, have. but I, I have to say, if I if I will tell if I might tell the story of, of our ownership transition. Yeah. You made it really easy. You 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 came to me and said, look, I you know, when the, the plans of trying to see if we could market Halls McCormick and Elmer as a as an entity that we could sell to help us, you know, solidify our financial condition. And you came to me with a plan. Mm -hmm. And I I admire that very much about you in terms of you had the courage to speak up. You saw something that you needed to have in place mm -hmm. and you wanted to keep it in place and you figured out a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And that that told me a lot about you. So thank you. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I tell that story a lot. You know, we, you know, I think you, your, your quote to me was, well, make me an offer. And right. I, I think that night I went right. back and I came back the next day and I made you an offer on how I was going to buy the firm. And I remember thinking like, there's no way he's going to buy into this. Like I'm going to pay him off over years. How why is he going to agree to this? But you did. <laughs> and it's and it's all it's all truly worked right. out. So and now we're on to sort of our second generation here. Yes. In, and in I, what you we're know, doing. I, 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 I look, you know, of course, I, I think about you guys all the time, especially during this the challenge of the pandemic, because I I think if I had still been here and had to go through this, I don't know that I would have had the fortitude to get through another catastrophe. <laughs> 
you know, I mean, I, I mean, given all of the things that happened to the firm over the years, I mean, I, I actually think that the 2008-9, you know, meltdown, the economic meltdown was actually harder on the firm than 9-11. Yes, 9-11, we lost, physically lost everything. We didn't lose any people, thank goodness, uh, that we were able to rebuild because we had our people mm -hmm. intact. <clears throat> the 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 catastrophe of the financial markets collapsing like they did in 2008-9, there was nothing else that we could do but to cut people loose. And that was very painful, yep. a very, very painful decision to make. And, you know, we were trying to find ways to get, you know, diversify and uh, we made some good decisions and we made some bad decisions, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, you have to live with the consequences of that. But I, I think one of our, one of our one of my good decisions was bringing you in. Thank you. But so. along those lines, uh, <clears throat> I, you you told me that you know in the years that we worked together that the financial crisis was worse in 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 certain ways than September 11th, and and that again you described the firm as a family and the people are important and the people are what make the firm right and, right. and you feel that I feel that absolutely. And when the the pandemic happened, you know, number one, not really understanding the fact that we were no longer going to go to our office. Like right. One day, we, it, and it had it accelerated very quickly. Right. I mean, we went from overnight, basically overnight. Yeah, we went from talking to our IT folks about this possibility that we may have to be in some sort of lockdown and that that seems ridiculous new york city will never lock down because right. it's new york city and they did <laughs> and how you know what's our plan if we do and them assuring us well we have the technology you know thankfully i mean that's one of my things is technology thankfully we invested in the right hardware and software and everything that we could work remotely it had never been tested on that scale of 75, 80 people all of a sudden remoting in. Right. Um, but they assured us that it would work. And then we had decided, well, we will test this on a Friday. We're going to, everyone's going to stay home on a Friday morning. Uh, everyone's going to stay home. They're going to log in from their house. We're going to kind of see, kick the tires, make sure it's robust enough. And then everyone was going to come into the office by lunchtime. We we're going to have a pizza party. That legitimately was our plan. OK. And um, all of a sudden, that plan that day went to actually we're not testing it starting tomorrow. It's nobody's good. coming back to the office. Right. Uh, some people didn't get that email, came to the office and they had I think there was like 30 pizzas here for, <laughs> for five people. But OK. Uh, but we, you know, we somehow muddled through and the beginning was very stressful. I mean, it was, you know, again, the unknown of what does a lockdown mean? What does a shutdown mean? What is what does a pandemic really mean? Right. right? I mean, we had no idea of any of this stuff. Uh, everyone, I think here, you know, thought at one point that everyone had it, you know, so it was unsure. Oh, so and so had a cold last week. They must have had COVID. And and so by staying home, at least we all got past that. Very few people, I will say, ultimately in our firm got COVID. Um, That's good. Yeah. And really nobody was was sick uh, at all. Great. Uh, most people that had it uh, either didn't know they had it or got a little bit sick. Uh, but, you know, thankfully that, that we, we kind of got through that. And then, you know, we were we were very bit. 2020 probably would have been Mancini Duffy's greatest year in the last 10 plus years. Um, 
because we had won so many large jobs early on. And then it, it began to, uh, you know, peter off a little bit. And towards the end of the year, really towards the end of the summer, you could really see the slowdown happening. And one thing that I did not want to do was let people go because we had spent years building this staff to what it is and we have the right people and the right seats and it was all important and i will say as much as the government you know is a complete mess <laughs> on so many levels uh the ppp loan really worked for us i mean Good. it really we we got that ppp loan and we decided as a as a leadership group as an ownership group that we were going to lose money for the rest of the year at the at the tone of two thousand two hundred thousand dollars a month right and but this money that we were getting from the government was going to make up the difference. And that really carried us through until, you know, January of this year when all of a sudden, you know, activity picked up back. and stuff came back. And and now, thankfully, we're off and running again. And uh, I think it'll it'll only get get better. And hopefully people start coming back to New York City and come to their offices. It's I mean, this is your first time here in what two years almost. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. it's still a shell of what it was. Um, a lot of stores right. are closed down. It's it's sad in some ways, but I'll tell you from a year and a half ago, it is a thousand times better than what it was. I mean, I could have laid down in the middle of Seventh Avenue for ten minutes and not worried about a car Getting hit. hitting me. So yeah, that's it was that's crazy. eerie. It was really crazy. Yeah. yeah so, right. so well, again, I, I thank you. For <laughs> my pleasure. I want to thank Tony Sharippa for sharing his story of real resilience and everyone that worked at the firm on September 11th, 2001, especially Dina Frank and Al D'Elia, who are an integral part of this story. Special thanks to J.P. Morgan Chase and KPMG. Our firm will never forget your generosity. It has been 20 years since the tragedies at the World Trade Center, Pentagon, and Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So many lives were changed that day. Please never forget, it's important. Thank you, and we will see you soon for the next episode of the Anti-Architect Podcast. Please refer to my LinkedIn for additional show notes and information, and of course, feel free to donate to t2t.org, an amazing organization.